Chapter 14 The Inner and Outer Revelation There are many people who believe that a careless general faithlessness has rarely, if ever, been more prevalent in our country than at this time, especially among young men. I am not prepared to say that it is an honest faithlessness, yet it may very probably be real. Young men may really doubt the inspiration of the Christian scriptures, not because they have honestly studied those scriptures and their numerous evidences, but because they have read them little and reasoned legitimately even less. Particularly, they have almost universally failed to study the intuitive affirmations of their own minds. They have not examined the original revelation that God has made in each human soul to see how far this would carry them and how wonderfully it opens the way for understanding and, indeed, for embracing the revelation given in God's Word. To bring these and similar points before your minds, I have taken as my text the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 4.2. By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is speaking of the gospel ministry that he received, and he is stating how he fulfilled it. He shows plainly that he should preach to the human conscience. He found in each person's heart a conscience to which he could appeal and to which the manifestation of the truth commended itself. Probably no thoughtful person has ever read the Bible without noticing that there has been a previous revelation given in some way to man. It assumes many things as being already known. Some of you might know that I was studying in my law office when I bought my first Bible, and that I bought it as one of my law books. No sooner had I opened it than I was struck to see how many things it assumed as being known, and therefore states much with no attempt at proof. For instance, the first verse in the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. This assumes the existence of God. It does not try to prove this truth, but it goes on the presumption that this revelation, the existence of a God, has been made already to all who are mature enough to understand it. The Apostle Paul also, in his epistle to the Romans, asserts that the real Godhead and eternal power of the one God though in some sense invisible things, are still clearly seen in the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made, so that all wicked people are without excuse. Romans 1.20 Paul's doctrine is that the created universe reveals God. If this is true of the universe without us, it is no less true of the universe within us. Our own minds, their convictions, and their necessary affirmations truly reveal God 
and many of the great truths that note our relations to him and to his government. When we read the Bible attentively and notice how many things of the utmost importance it assumes and bases its precepts on them without attempting to prove them, we cannot resist asking if these assumptions are properly made. The answer to this question is found when we turn our eye within and inquire for the intuitive affirmations of our own minds. When we do so, we will see that we possess an intellectual and moral nature that just as truly reveals great truths concerning God and our relations to Him, and to law as the material world reveals His eternal power and Godhead. For instance, we will see that man has a moral nature related to spiritual and moral truth, just as certainly as he has a physical nature related to the physical world. As his senses, sight, touch, hearing, perceive certain truths respecting the external world, so does his spiritual nature perceive certain truths respecting the spiritual world. No one can well consider the first class of truths without being forced to consider and believe the second. Let us see if this is true. Not long ago, I met with a young lady of considerable intelligence who was a skeptic. She professed to believe in God and in those great truths pertaining to His attributes that are embraced in deism. But she quite rejected the Bible and all that pertains to a revealed way of salvation. I began presenting to her mind some of the great truths taught by the mind's own affirmations concerning God, His attributes, and His government, and then I proceeded to show her how the Bible came in to make out a system of truth needful to man as a lost sinner. Of course, she admitted the first, and then she saw that the second must be true if the first was true or else there could be nothing for man but hopeless ruin. Recoiling in horror from the gulf of despair, she saw that only her unbelief was ruining her soul. She then renounced this, yielded her heart to God, and found gospel peace and joy in believing. I plan now to present much the same course of thought to you as I did to her. The first great question is, what ideas does our own nature, God's first revelation, give us? 1. Undoubtedly, man's own nature gives him the idea of God. Our own minds affirm that there is and must be a God and that he must have all power and all knowledge. Our minds also give us God's moral attributes. No one can doubt that God is good and just. People are never afraid that God will do anything wrong. If anyone is ever afraid of God at all, it is because he is good. He is just and holy. 2. Man's nature gives him the idea of law, moral law. 
he can no more doubt the existence of a moral law imposed also on himself than he can doubt the existence of his own soul and body. He knows he should not be selfish, but should be compassionate. He knows he is obligated to love his neighbor as himself. How is it that people get these ideas? I answer that they must have them by nature. They must be in the mind before they receive any direct instruction from human lips, or else you could never teach a child these ideas any more than you could teach them to a horse. The child knows these things before he is taught, and he cannot remember when he first knew them. Suppose you were to close your Bible and ask, Apart from all that this book teaches, how much do I know? You would find that your moral nature gives you the idea of a God and affirms His existence. It gives you His attributes, natural and moral, and also your own moral relations to Him and to your fellow beings. In proof of this, I can appeal to you that not one of you can say that you are under no obligation to love God and your fellow humans. Your moral nature teaches you these things. It affirms to you these truths even more directly and undeniably than your senses give you the facts of the external world. Moreover, your moral nature not only gives you the law of supreme love to God and of love equal and impartial toward your fellow men, but it affirms that you are sinners, that you have displeased God and have utterly failed to please Him, and, of course, that you are under condemnation from His righteous law. You know that God's good law must condemn you, because you have not been good in the sense required by that law. Therefore, you must know that you are in the position of a criminal, condemned by the law and without hope from the administration of justice. Another thing it teaches you is that you are still unrepentant. I speak of those who know this to be their case. Your own conscience affirms this to you beyond all contradiction. It affirms that you are still living in sin and have not reformed in such a way that God can accept your reformation. You know that you do harm to your own conscience and that while you are doing this, you can neither respect yourself nor be respected by God. You know that as long as this is the case with you, God cannot forgive you. Even more, if He would, it would not do any good. You could not be happy. You could not respect yourself, even if you were told that you were forgiven. Even if your nature spoke out honestly, it would not let you believe that you are really forgiven as long as you are doing harm to your conscience. I can remember when these thoughts were in my mind like fire. I saw that no one could doubt them any more than he could doubt his own existence. 
certainly you may see these truths and feel their force. You know then that you have forfeited the favor of God by your sins, and you have no claim on Him at all based upon the score of justice. You have cast off His authority and have refused subjection to His law and government. Indeed, you have cast all His precepts beneath your feet. You can no longer come before God and say, You should not have cast me off. I have not deserved it at your hand. You can no more say this honestly than you can deny your own existence. Did you ever think of this? Have you ever tried to see what you can honestly do and say before God? Have you ever tried to go into God's presence and seriously tell Him that He has no right to punish you? Not one of you can tell him so without being conscious in yourself of blasphemy. It is a good method because it may serve to show you how the case really stands. Suppose you try it. See what you can honestly and with an approving conscience say before God when your soul is deeply impressed with the sense of His presence. Consider that I am not asking you whether you can harden your heart and violate your conscience enough to blaspheme God to His face, but I am asking you to put the honest convictions of your own conscience to the test and see what they are and what they will allow you to do and to say before God. Can you kneel down before Him and say, I deny that I have cast off God. I have never refused to treat Him as a friend. I have never treated Him as an enemy. You know that you can make no issue of this kind with God without meeting the rebukes of your own mind. Maybe you can see no reason to hope for forgiveness under the law. With all the light of your deism, you can discern no ground of pardon. Outside the Bible, all is as dark as death. There is no hope. If you cling to any hope, it must be directly in the teeth of your own solemn convictions. Why do you think it is so difficult to persuade a wise governor to grant a pardon? When Jerome Bonaparte was monarch of Spain, why did his brother Napoleon send him that earnest rebuke for pardoning certain criminals? What were the principles that underlaid that remarkably able state paper? Have you ever studied those principles as they were grasped and presented so powerfully by the mighty mind of Napoleon? You can never infer from the goodness of God that he can forgive, much less that he must. One of the first universalist preachers I ever heard announced at the beginning that he would infer from the goodness of God that he would save all people. I can well remember how perfectly shallow his arguments appeared to me and how absurd his assumptions seemed. I was not a Christian then, 
but I quickly saw that he could much better infer from the goodness of God that he would forgive none than that he would forgive all. It seemed to me most clear that if God were good and had made a good law, he would sustain it. Why not? I must suppose that his law is a good one. How could a being of infinite wisdom and love impose any other law than a good law? And if it were a good law, it had a good end to answer, and a good God could not allow it to fail to answer those ends by letting it come to nothing through inefficiency in its administration. I knew enough about law and government then to see that a firm hand in administration is essential to any good results from ever so good a law. Of course, I knew that if law were left to be trampled underfoot by hardened, blasphemous transgressors, and then to add to that, and broad pardon were given, and nothing done to sustain the law, there would be an end of all authority and a positive annihilation of all the good hoped for under its administration. Will rational people attempt to presume from God's goodness that he will pardon all sinners? Suppose the spirit of riot and lawlessness now so rampant at Erie, Pennsylvania, goes from bad to worse, that the rioters commit every form of mischief in their power. Suppose that they tear up the rails, burn down the bridges, shoot into the cars, and run entire trains off the track, crushing the quivering flesh of hundreds all at once into heaps of blood and bones. Then, when the guilty are arrested and convicted by due course of law, the question comes up, will the governor pardon them? He might be very much inclined to do so, if he wisely could. But could a good governor do so? What would a purely good and truly wise governor do? Will you say, Oh, he is too good to punish. He is so good, he will certainly pardon. Will you say that pardon broadly given and given to all will secure the highest respect for the law and the best obedience? Everybody knows that this is absolute nonsense. No one who ever had anything to do under the responsibilities of government or who has ever learned the basics of human nature in this relation, can for one moment suppose that pardon in such ways can replace punishment with any other result than complete ruin. No. If the ruler is good, he will certainly punish, and all the more certainly by how much more predominant the element of goodness in his character is. You sinners are under the law. If you sin, you must see much reason why God should punish and not forgive. Here is another fact. When you look upon yourself and your moral position, you find yourself twice dead. 
you are civilly dead in the sense of being condemned by law, an outcast from governmental favor. You are also morally dead, for you do not love God, do not serve Him, and have no tendencies that will lead you to care about the things of God. On the other hand, you are dead to all considerations that could lead this way. You are indeed alive to your own low selfish interests, but dead to God's interests. You care nothing for God except to avoid Him and escape His judgment. You know all this beyond question. In this condition, without a further revelation, where is your hope? You have none and have no reason for any. Furthermore, if a future revelation is to be made revealing some reason for pardon, you can see with the light now before you on what basis it must rest. You can see what more you need from God. The first revelation closes you up to God. It shows you that if help ever comes, it cannot come from yourself, but must come from God. It cannot come from His justice, but must come from His mercy. It cannot come from the law, but must come from some extra provision whereby the law may have its demands satisfied other than through the execution of its penalty on the offender. You can see that somebody must intercede for you who can take your part and stand in your place before the offended law. Did you ever think of this? In the position where you stand and where your own nature and your own convictions place you, you are compelled to say, my case is hopeless. I need a double salvation from condemnation and from sinning. I need to be saved first from the curse and then from the heart to sin from the tendency and inclination to commit sin. Where can I find a revelation to meet these needs of my lost soul? Is the answer to be found in all the book of nature? No. Look into the irresistible convictions of your own moral being. They tell you of your needs but they do not supply those needs. They show what you need, but they entirely fail to give it. Your own moral nature shows that you need an atoning Savior and a renewing Spirit. Nothing less can meet the case of a sinner condemned, unlawful, and doubly dead by the moral corruption of all his voluntary powers. The worst trouble with unbelief is that it ignores all this. It takes no notice of one entire side of our nature, and that side is the most important side. It talks much about philosophy, yet restricts itself to the philosophy of the outer world, and has no interest in the inner and higher nature. It ignores the fact that our moral nature affirms one entire class of great truths, 
and does so with even more force and certainty than the senses affirm the facts of the external world. Truly, this is a tremendous and a fatal omission. Remarks 1. Without the first revelation, the second could not be satisfactorily proved. When the Bible reveals God, it assumes that our minds affirm His existence and that we need no higher proof. When it reveals His law, it presupposes that we are capable of understanding it and of appreciating its moral claims. When it prescribes duty, it assumes that we would feel the force of obligation to obey it. The fact that the Bible makes many arguments of this sort establishes an intimate and dependent connection between the Bible on the one hand and the laws of the human mind on the other. If these assumptions are well and truly made, then the divine authority of the Bible is abundantly sustained by its correspondence and harmony with the intellectual and moral nature of man. It suits the beings to whom it is given. On the other hand, if these assumptions had on examination proved false, it would be impossible to sustain the credit of the Scriptures as coming from a wise and honest being. 2. Having the first revelation, it is most absurd to reject the second. The second is to a great extent a reaffirmation of the first, with various important additions of a supplementary sort, such as the atonement, and therefore the possibility of pardon, and the gift and work of the Spirit and therefore the related possibility of being saved from sinning. Now, these things that the first revelation affirms and the second reaffirms are so fundamental in any revelation of moral duty to moral beings that having them taught so naturally and so undeniably, we are left self-convicted of extreme absurdity if we then reject the second. Logically, there seems no ground left on which to base a denial of the written revelation. Its supplementary doctrines are not, to be sure, intuitive truths, but they are so related to man's needs as a lost sinner, and they so richly supply those needs. Moreover, they are so beautifully related to the requirements of God's government and they so sufficiently meet those requirements that no intelligent mind, once understanding all these things and their actual relationships, can fail to recognize their truthfulness. 3. The study of the first secures an intellectual reception of the second. I do not believe it is possible for anyone to read and understand the first thoroughly and then come to the second and properly understand its relation to his own moral nature and moral convictions and also his moral needs without being compelled to say that it is all true, 
that the Bible is entirely true. They coincide so wondrously, and the former sustains the latter so admirably and so triumphantly, that a person can no more deny the Bible after knowing all his own moral relations than he can deny his own existence. 4. You see why so many people reject the Bible? They have not read it well themselves. They have not looked within to read carefully the volume God has put on record there. They have labored to quiet and extinguish the ever-rising convictions of their own moral nature. They have refused to listen to the cry of need that swells up from their troubled heart of sin. Therefore, there is still one entire volume of revelation of which they are strangely ignorant. This ignorance accounts for their rejection of the Bible. A little attention to the subject will show you that the reason here indicated is beyond question that basis on which the multitudes in every Christian land really rest their faith in the Bible. Hardly one in ten thousand of them have studied the historical argument for divine revelation extensively and carefully so as to intelligently make this a cornerstone for his faith in the Bible it is not reasonable to demand that they should. There is an argument that is shorter and infinitely more convincing. It is a simple problem. A soul is guilty, condemned, and lost, and some adequate relief is required. The gospel solves the problem. Who will not accept the solution? It answers every condition perfectly. Therefore, it must come from God. It is at least our highest wisdom to accept it. Someone might reply to this that such a problem fits the situation only of those who give their hearts to God. However, this may be adapted to yet another group of people. Some know that their moral nature affirms God, law, obligation, sin, and ruin and they have a need to know whether a written revelation is reliable that is built upon the broad basis of man's intuitive affirmations, that gives them the approval of man's Creator, that adds a system of duty and of salvation of such a kind that it interlocks itself inseparably with truth intuitive to man, and that clearly fills out an accompaniment of moral instructions and agencies in perfect adaptation to both man and his Maker. In the Bible, we have the very thing required, a key that threads the countless obstacles of such a lock must have been made to fit. Each came from the same author. You cannot grant to man an origin from God without granting the same origin to the Bible. When I came to examine these things in the light of my own convictions, I wondered how I had not seen them truly before. Suppose I would now announce to you the two great precepts of the moral law. 
Would not their obvious nature and meaning enforce on your mind the conviction that these precepts must be true and must be from God? As I would discuss these things more specifically, you would still affirm that these must be true and that these must certainly have come down from heaven. Even if I were to go back to the Mosaic law, a law that many object to because they do not understand the circumstances that called for such a law, and would explain their special circumstances and the reasons for such statutes, everyone must affirm the righteousness of even those statutes. I am aware that the Old Testament reveals truth under a veil since the world was not then ready for its clear revelation. The veil was taken away when, in the fullness of time, people were prepared for God in the flesh being clearly revealed. Galatians 4.4 The reason, therefore, why so many people receive the Bible is not that they are gullible and therefore accept absurdities with ease, but the reason is that because it commends itself so irresistibly to each person's own nature and to his deep and resistless convictions, he is compelled to receive it. He would do harm to his inner convictions if he rejects it. Man's whole nature cries out, This is just what I need. That young lady of whom I spoke could not help but abandon her unbelief and surrender her heart to God when she had reached this point. I asked her, Do you admit that there is a God? She answered, Yes. Do you admit that there is law? Yes. Do you admit your personal sin? Yes. And your need of salvation? Oh, yes. Can you help yourself? Oh, no, she said. I do not believe I can ever be saved. But God can save you. Certainly nothing is too hard for him. Oh, she replied, my own nature has closed me in. I am in despair. There is no way of escape for me. The Bible, you know, I don't receive, and here I am in darkness and despair. At this point, I began to speak of the gospel. I said to her, Listen, God has done such and such things as revealed in the gospel. He came down and dwelt in human flesh to meet the case of such sinners as you are. He made a sufficient atonement for sin. What do you think of that? That is exactly what I need, she said. If it were only true. If it is not true, I said, you are lost beyond hope. Why then not believe? I cannot believe it, she answered, because it is inconceivable. It is much too good to be true. And is not God good, I said, infinitely good? Then why do you object that anything he does is too good to be true? 
That is what I need, she repeated again. But how can it be so? Then you cannot give God credit for being so good, I said. I see that it is my unbelief, but I cannot believe. I can clearly see that is what I need, but how can I believe it? At this point, I rose up and said to her seriously, The crisis has come. There is now only one question for you. Will you believe the gospel? She raised her eyes, which had been sad and covered for half an hour or more. Every feature declared the most intense discomfort. I asked again, Will you believe God? Will you give Him credit for sincerity? She threw herself upon her knees and began to loudly weep. What a scene, to see a skeptic beginning to give God credit for love and truth, to see the door of light and hope opened, and heaven's blessed light breaking in upon a desolate soul. Have you ever witnessed such a scene? When she next opened her lips, it was to proclaim the Savior's praise. The Bible presumes that you have enough light to see and to do your duty, and to find the way to heaven. A great many of you are perhaps confused as to your religious beliefs, holding undefined and cynical ideas. You have not seen that it is the most reasonable thing in the world to acknowledge and embrace this glorious truth. Will you allow yourself to go on confused without considering that you are yourself a living, walking revelation of truths? Will you refuse to come into such a relationship to God and Christ that will save your soul? In my early life, when I was tempted with doubt, I can well remember that I said to myself that it is much more probable that ministers and the multitudes of good people who believe the Bible are right than that I am. I knew that they had examined the subject while I had not. It was therefore entirely unreasonable for me to doubt. Certainly you can say, I know that the gospel is suited to my needs. I know I am afloat on the vast ocean of life, and if there is no gospel, there is nothing that can save me. It is therefore not right for me to stand here and criticize. I must examine it. I must look into this matter. I can at least see that if God offers me mercy, I must not reject it. Does not this gospel show you how you can be saved from hell and from sin? Then believe it. Let the blessed truth find your heart open for its acceptance. When will you dare to give God credit for all His love and truth? And when will you bring your heart under the power of this truth and surrender yourself to its blessed influence? That 
will be the dawn of morning to your soul. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. Revelation 22, 17